I'm Greg Quinn, and I'm a farmer here in Dutchess County, and I'm on the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. My biggest pet peeve in the current industry is the confusion in the name currents. Currents were outlawed in 1911 by an act of Congress, and shortly after they were outlawed, some importers started bringing in raisins from Greece, specifically from the Ionian region of Corinth and Zacanthos. When the first shipments hit the loading dock in New York, the writing on the outside of the packages was mistranslated from Zacanthos and Corinth to Zante Currents. And for 80 years now, we've got cookbooks telling us currants and our scones and our rice pilaf dishes and our soda bread. And in fact, they're raisins, they're not currants. Welcome to the Big Mouth Pharmacist Podcast. I'm Neil. I'm the Big Mouth Pharmacist. I'm a pretty sarcastic, slightly unprofessional healthcare professional, a holistic pharmacist here to talk about everything wellness, weed, and Woodstock. We broadcast from the most famous small town in America, where I hold court as the town's family pharmacist who tries to get people off their medicines and onto a wellness program free of the BS and misinformation of the natural products industry. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Neil Smoller, holistic pharmacist and victim of Halloween candy overdose. I hope your week was good, as good as mine was. I dressed up for Halloween. I was uh, Freddy Krueger Mercury, so I was like Freddy Mercury for the face. And then I had Freddy's sweatshirt on, you know, and the, the claws. And then I had the Sambas. I got to buy new Adidas, so I looked like Freddy Mercury. So that's my story. I hope you dressed up, participated in all of the fun. This year's wrapping up. Uh, Halloween means that we're going to be hitting all of the crazy holiday season. So I'm going to tell you to go to woodstockvitamins.com slash CBD because you need to learn about the thing that'll save you from all the holiday stresses of dealing with a family and small children. (laughs) It might be a good idea to get a fresh bottle and keep it close. Today's episode is a story of an unfamiliar berry, a berry made illegal for the usual silly reasons that things are made illegal. And the fact that a berry was made illegal is kind of silly. Uh, That law, though, was overturned thanks to the persistence and tenacity of a farmer, culinary expert, and horticulture expert, our guest, Greg Quinn. Greg's the owner of The Current Farm, which is also known as Walnut Grove Farm in nearby Dutchess County. And he's the guy. He's the one individual, the reason that we have real currants being grown and harvested here in our country. And that's pretty cool. The main theme today is currants, the magical fruit. The more you eat, the more you, uh, you know, get healthier. And what is a current? Well, we'll tell you. Don't worry. It would be pretty lame if I didn't teach you that. And by the end of this, you'll want to make real currants part of your diet, I hope, because it is a real superfood. Uh, the second theme today, though, besides currants, is going to be audio issues. So we had to do Greg's interview like three times to get the connection and the audio correct. So uh, I even bought new cool equipment to make this whole thing sound much more professional. So I, I hope uh, moving forward, we won't have the audio issues that we've had in the past. So sorry in advance. So here's Greg Quinn, though, telling us his unique current story. So, Greg, I've gotten books from guests before, and I've even like recently got a fast pass for the nearest marijuana dispensary, you know, as like a gift for coming on. But no one sent me food. And I don't think anybody, if they do, will be able to touch the amount of food that you sent. I got a basket full of current products. And like, actually, as we speak, I'm just taking scoops of jam with my fingers and eating them. And I have just purple all down my shirt right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. I've I've achieved my mission. Oh, my God. It was amazing. Actually, you know, I'm obviously not a slob, but we had currants in our our collagen uh, smoothie that my wife and I have every morning. And it was a level of sweetness that I don't think even my sugar uh, cravings uh, have has hit in a while. So I want to say thank you. It's it's an amazing tasting and uh, beautiful product. Um, thank you. You're welcome. So 
I was on your site, and it says uh, that you guys are the America uh, America's number one source for black current products. Is that like the world's best pizza or coffee signs that you see in restaurants? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> kind of. You know, um, the uh, we were actually first to market with currents, and so uh, we're now selling our domestically produced and um, uh, what we like to call nationally available current products um, through an e-commerce model. Mm -hmm. And so they're really available in all 50 states, and um, and we actually sell and, and ship to all 50 states every week. So, well, to many of the 50 states every yeah. week. Yeah. Well, I mean, I have faith that you're not going to mislead people. I think that you're obviously <laughs> doing really, really good work with the current market. So we may have lost people, though, like just saying that we're going to talk about currents today because a lot of people might not even be aware of what a current is. So let's talk about a current and current seeds and the difference and sure. like what, what the health benefits are and why people should care. Yeah, so currants are a family. They actually belong to the same family as gooseberries, which people may have heard of. There's about, I guess, four or five different currants in general. So there's red currants, black currants, white currants, pink currants, and then, you know, some green and gold currants that are really rare. And the big gun in the industry is the black currant. The black currant contains twice the antioxidant of blueberries, four times the vitamin C of oranges, more potassium than bananas, plus calcium, iron, manganese, magnesium. Uh, you know, when people, it's, it's been very common in the last decade or more to talk about superfoods, superfruits. This is the real deal. They have the biggest cash of health goodies of anything else out there. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so I always say when we talk about superfoods, the idea of uh, a superfood is really just a healthy food that we used to eat and it's not a hyper-processed garbage food. So superfoods is really just food. But when it comes to currants, it seems like they actually fit the bill for super duper food. <laughs> they really do. They really do. And they're still not very well known in the U.S. Yeah. I, I think that uh, I'm sure soon after this podcast, uh, black currants will be uh, lining the shelves of our store and our online store, the virtual shelves, uh, because people will be going nuts for them, hearing all of this great stuff. Now, you were talking about currants, and and so like it's a berry, right? Because I've got a bag full of jam, and I've got the fruits and everything in, in a bag. So the idea of current seeds and flowers and all of the berries and stuff, can you give us a breakdown of the plant and what it looks like so you know sure. get the real in-depth look? So currants grow on a bush. The bushes are a variety of sizes depending on the cultivar, but in general, uh, four to five feet high, four feet wide, uh, and they produce berries on what is botanically called a strake. Now, this is a little pendulous um, extension off of the main branch, and the currants kind of hang in these little pendulous groups. Uh, it's, it's different from a bunch of grapes in that grapes have lots of little branches going off in all directions, whereas currants have this basic one stem off of which you have the berries. Um, and um, you can pick the whole stem or you can pick just the currants. Uh, we harvested currants in the beginning when I started this thing by hand, and I can tell you it's not the way you want to spend your life. It's really difficult to do on a large scale. The currants grow inside the leaves, have sort of bend over all the time and part the leaves and put them so that the ripe berries don't fall on the ground before you have a chance. After several years of, of, uh, of trying to pick currants, uh, I actually imported a uh, current harvesting machine uh, from Poland. There were none manufactured here in the U.S., so I had to go over there to get one. And this is basically a 20-foot 
um, apparatus that pulls behind my tractor. Uh, it's very, very efficient. I can get about 90% of the currents that are on the bush. Uh, in addition to the current, uh, it goes through a vacuum, a very large vacuum run off the uh, tractor, and that vacuum sucks off most of the debris and insects. We don't spray our currents, so uh, there's the occasional ladybug or whatever on there, and uh, basically sucks all the stuff and blows it back out onto the field. Got it. So, Greg, this sounds amazing and interesting and currents sound awesome, but this conversation sounds pretty generic, and I don't like to be a generic guy. So let's get into the like the meat of this story. Currents were illegal until you came along. Is that correct? <laughs> That's right. So it's an interesting story, uh, and actually, um, I'll take a little bit of a service road. It actually goes back to when the first European settlers came here. The whole northeastern part of the country was covered with ancient white pine trees. And we started cutting these trees, of course, to clear land for agriculture, but they're also used for stockades and log cabins and furniture and so forth. And it actually, interestingly enough, became the first commerce of the New World. Uh, we started to um, ship them uh, to Europe. There were no tall white pines in Europe at that point in time, so they were a valuable commodity. Uh, the first currency uh, in the New World was the white pine shilling. Uh, and, um, you know, it was a very important thing. And we just continued to cut white pines for, you know, literally a couple hundred years. And, uh, of course, back in those days, nobody thought of things like reforestation. And so, right. you know, you cleaned off the side of one mountain and you just go to the next mountain and start cutting those. And um, by the late 1800s, uh, it was a huge problem as the mountains had become denuded and the valleys and the hills. Uh, erosion was a big problem. Streams were getting... Uh, silted up, and uh, in addition to which, when you cut a white pine, the only thing you really use is the trunk. So there are these huge, great mountains of very flammable pine boughs. Oftentimes, they'd get hit by lightning. There would be fires that would take out towns. And by 1878, the United States government, recognizing this problem, created the U.S. Forestry Service for the sole purpose, or for the main purpose, um, of reforesting white pines. So there was no nursery infrastructure in the U.S. to do this. So we collected about 10 million seeds and sent them to Germany, which had a, a very vigorous nursery infrastructure. And they propagated the plants and they sent back millions of white pine seedlings, all of which were infected with a fungus. Mm -hmm. That fungus was called white pine blister rust. And when they brought the seedlings over here and started planting them, they noticed right away that within the first couple of years that they were exhibiting this fungus. And as you can imagine, in the early, late 1800s, early 1900s, pathology, plant pathology wasn't as sophisticated as it is today. But with a little bit of research, the plant pathologist of the time discovered that the alternate host for this particular fungus in white pines was the family of rivies, which is currants and gooseberries. And so it was actually the indigenous currents which were helping to spread this disease. And uh, so in 1911, uh, through an act of Congress, the commercial cultivation of currents for the entire United States, coast to coast, was outlawed. Um, it pretty much remained off the radar screen until all oh, the 1960s. When the federal government, uh, you know, they do periodic uh, legislative housekeeping, you know, you can't ride your horse on the street on Sunday kind of law. And they decided to kick uh, current cultivation and the ban thereof to 
huge space jurisdiction. Nobody was growing currents. People didn't really know what currents were back then and so forth. Right. And, uh, and most states took the law. They kind of adopted it as it was written, threw it in the bottom drawer of the proverbial file cabinet, and that was the, that's, was the end of that. Um, I got this farm. Uh, my wife and I uh, bought the farm in 1999, and I was looking for an unusual crop. I, I wasn't interested in growing just corn and apples and hay like most folks. And I looked into ginseng, and I looked into varieties of garlic, and you know, just something like that. I have a horticultural background, so right. and marijuana is frowned livestock. upon. So you don't want to you don't want to do weed. Because, well, you know. yeah, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't as close to being legal back then as it is now, right. certainly. Mm-hmm. Um, so I um, uh, started looking around, and I happened to visit a local uh, vintner. And the day that we visited, uh, he was making a liqueur called Cassis. Uh, now, cassis is not only made from black currants, but actually cassis is the French word for black currant. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I, because I, I had taught at the New York Botanical Gardens for 25 years, I knew about the ban on currants. Uh, and I actually knew about currants. I used to have a restaurant in Bavaria behind which grew all these currants. So, I had cooked with them, and I knew some of the health benefits and so forth. And I was intrigued by the fact he was making this black currant liqueur and I asked him you know where he got his currants and he said oh it's just a real pain in the butt I've got to go up to Canada and bring them in from Canada because you can't grow them here and so forth and so on and so I thought huh let me look into currants as a possible crop for this new farm and I started looking into it uh, I knew that they had banned, were banned I knew that there was a fungus called white pine blister rust but I didn't really know much beyond that um, so I kind of gathered a little bit of information and I ran it past some colleagues up at Cornell University who are in fact plant pathologists mm-hmm. and they looked at it for a little while and they came back to me and they concurred and they said, you know, it wasn't good science in 1911. Plus there are varieties, cultivars of black currants now and red currants that are, um, you know, more disease resistant, more robust and so forth. And, uh, it's really not necessary to have this law in place. So with that under my arm, I decided that I would um, investigate the possibility of changing the law and growing black currants. And I thought from a marketing standpoint, what a cool thing if I could actually get the law changed. And uh, how does one change a law? I had no idea. I'm not an attorney. And uh, so I went up to Albany and I finally got a meeting with the state senator up there. Yeah. And um, I sat down and he said, okay, so we're going to introduce this new fruit, this new berry to the uh, New York market, the U.S. market. He said, how big is the market for currants? And I said, well, there is no market for currants. You know, Zero, occasional right. jar of black currant jam coming from England, but aside from that, there's no really market because it was banned. And he said, well, that's not good news. Of course, he was asking me how many votes. <laughs> and uh, and then he said, well, how, how many farmers are involved? And I said, again, you know, there's no farmers involved because it was banned. He kind of summarily dismissed me and said, uh, you know, state legislature and we've got a lot of things in our plates and you know there's there's mm-hmm. no market and nobody knows what this is and you know and uh, so <laughs> I, I left the office but i started going up to albany almost every week and trying to talk to state assembly people state legislators state senators and uh <laughs> after a while i can sort of almost remember hearing as I'm walking down the halls of the legislative office building, doors closing and locks ticking. And people were talking <laughs> so are you about coming? This crazy current, <laughs> yeah, this crazy current guy, you know, is up here again. 
And uh, I would actually start, I got in the habit of starting to bring up boxes of Danish pastry, you know, and I'd slip them to the law clerks and the secretaries and tell them to sneak me in if there was a uh, cancellation or whatever. And after a couple of months of doing this, after a few months of doing this, I got a call one day from a writer at the Wall Street Journal. And he told me, he said, look, my beat is Albany, and uh, there's a lot of people up here talking about this many current guy, you know. And he <laughs> said, it's kind of interesting, how would you like to do an interview? And I thought, sure, you know, I'd love to press might help my, my efforts. And uh, so he did an interview with me, and then he spent the next two or three weeks interviewing uh, barbarists and interviewing college professors who taught the boric culture and taught about the disease, the pathology, and on and on. And uh, about three or four weeks after he interviewed me, he called me up one day and he said, um, you know, the article's going to be in the Wall Street Journal tomorrow. Wow. So, of course, very excitedly the next morning, ran out and got the Wall Street Journal. And uh, sure enough, there was the article was on the front page of the Wall Street Journal. Now, if you remember some years back, the Wall Street Journal used to have that center column, which was kind of a, you know, somewhat business finance, but was more of a human interest. And it ended up in that center column at mm-hmm. the Wall Street Journal, on the Wall Street Journal. And I was very excited, as you can imagine. Yeah. And um, I read the article, and the article was terrible. It uh, <laughs> took the side of the lumber industry. Uh, there was no real good science to prove the currents were going to be safe. Plus, currents were so tart, Americans were never going to be able to eat them. There was no possible market. I mean, it was just terrible. But, you know, there's a saying in the media, which is, you can write whatever you want about me, just spell my name right. Right. And the next morning, literally, uh, I got a call from a state senator up in western New York who was on the Ag Committee. Uh, his name is William Lark. In fact, he just passed away a couple of weeks ago. Mm. Um, and Bill called up and he said, uh, you know, I read the article in the journal and we're always looking for new crops and, and so forth. He said, this sounds really interesting. Let's talk. And that was the beginning. And so we spent the next six months uh, drafting a bill. And the way one changes the law is you draft a bill. Uh, and you put it before a vote before the Senate and then before the Assembly and then put it on the governor's desk if it passes both those houses. And if the governor signs it, then you have a new law which supersedes the old law, and that's the way one changes the law. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so they, they say it's like bill. making sausage. You don't want to watch it happen. I actually have been yeah. a part of it like in Albany and knocking on doors trying to get stuff changed for pharmacy. And the same thing, it's, it's like... This is the worst process <laughs> ever. It, it really, it really is. I mm. mean, it's it's not for the faint of heart. That's no. for sure. It just well, takes a long time and lots of, you know, lots lots of uh, you know, just real sort of stick stick to it. You know. Yeah, I mean, and uh, that kind of brings up a point. Like you, before you go on with the story. Why did you keep going back? Like a lot of people would just get be like, all right, this isn't going to change. You know, like, why did you keep going for two months? You know, it's, it's a good question. Um, like I said, I had experience with uh, black currants. Uh, I'm a cook. And so I cooked with them. Black currants are very tart, which means they're astringent. Mm-hmm. And as such, they're fabulous to cook with. You know, they, you know, when something is tart, like a lemon, mm-hmm. you use it. You know, you don't put lemon on fish to make it taste lemony. You put it on fish to bring out the natural flavor of the fish or other desserts and products. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same thing with currants. Uh, they not only have this incredibly unique flavor themselves, but they can really bring out the flavor of whatever you're using it as a sauce or whatever the case may be. So I had that going for me. I knew a lot about the health benefits of the currents, which were kind of over the top. And it just struck me early in the course of this event that, 
you know, this was such an unusual fruit, you know, it was too good. You know, I mean, you can come across, I mean, there's, everyone's coming across different fruits from time to time, acai from the rainforest and this and that. But this thing seemed to just have all the pieces. And it was really well known throughout all of Europe and even in the Far East and in New Zealand and Australia and South Africa. Uh, and the only place it wasn't known and hadn't been tried because of the ban was the United States. Yeah. So for me, that meant that there was the potential of a really big market. I wasn't just going to introduce a, a new pygmy coconut that hopefully somebody will buy one day. Mm-hmm. You know, this thing had real potential, and that's really why I stayed with it. That's great. The tenacity that eventually paid off, you got in to see some people? Like, what was the next step after your Wall Street Journal so beat you up? we started crafting this law with uh, Senator Larkin, I got a few more senators to sign on. You know, once there's an actual bill in the works, then people will talk to you. Yeah. You know, then it's not just speculation from some nutty guy with a, a right. you know, some purple berry. And uh, so I did a lot of lobbying and uh, going to talk with senators and assembly people. It was much easier to get in to talk to them at that point in time. And six months after we began this process, it went for a vote for the Senate. It passed unanimously. It's the first agriculture bill that passed unanimously in, I think, 35 years. Wow. Um, and then the following week, it went up before the Assembly, and it passed unanimously in the Assembly. They then uh, threw it over to then-Governor Pataki's desk, and four months later, he signed it into law, and we got the law changed. Wonderful. And parents uh, became legal. Uh, in fact, I'll tell you a quick uh, side note to the whole thing. It, it depressed that um, followed this thing, a change in the law, was really pretty remarkable. I mean, it landed on the front page of the New York Times metro section with two pictures out, two pictures in. It was picked up by the, the uh, you know, the Washington Post, the Boston Globe, the L.A. Times. The uh, Associated Press picked up the story and sent it out to 480 newspapers, and they called it the Forbidden Fruit. Yeah. And uh, back then, this is 2003, uh, you know, the internet was just kind of gaining some traction and internet news wasn't what it was today, but there was a CNN online and CNN picked up the story and they had 14 million hits in a 24 hour period. Oh my goodness. Which is just astounding. I mean, it just, you know, but it was this David and Goliath story that just really captured everybody's imagination. So then did the, and, just uh, a bunch of farmers flood the market and say, I'm going to get on this current bandwagon or actually no, actually <laughs> no, because it was a, um, you know, it's a very big risk, uh, and uh, In what you way? Know, a lot of people want. Well, because you know, there's no market. All right. So nope. You can go out and plant a bunch of bushes and grow it, but who are you going to sell it to? Right. You know, far- farmers don't want to speculate, and uh, you know, and you have to. And, and I and I don't recommend it. I mean, what I did, which is different from what most people do, is I decided early in the game to not only farm it and produce the source of supply, but develop the market by way of creating products. Um, it's it's not common, you know. Farmers give to people that make products, and those are two yeah. entirely different entities in the majority of cases. Right. So you did the whole su- the the whole supply chain in order to try I to did. create you know, a market. Mm-hmm. I really wanted to control as much as I could how currents were perceived. I was afraid that they, you know, they weren't marketed properly in the beginning. They would be sold as a cheap juice or a cheap product, and of course. Once you start down that road, then all of a sudden, all the prices are cheap. The farmers can't afford to grow it, and the whole thing goes away. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to kind of control the aspect. And because currants are so healthy and so delicious, I really wanted to make sure that they were introduced to the U.S. market as this high-quality and not necessarily inexpensive fruit. Because, of course, if it doesn't make a lot of money, 
then farmers, there's no point for a farmer to grow it and sell it to manufacturers. Well, that too. I mean, we changed the law in New York, but did anything change anywhere else? So, um, first of all, currants need a thousand hours a year below freezing temperatures to grow. So that means that they have to grow in the north. Mm-hmm. So, um, Anything below the Mason-Dixon line, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, currents won't grow. You can't grow currants in Alabama and, and Mississippi. Um, and so it was really only the northern tier that that was issued. And since I've changed the law, every single state has picked up the precedent of what I've done, except for, I think there's still four holdouts out there. And the only reason they haven't changed the law is because nobody in the state has picked up the baton and said, hey, I want to do this. Right. So it's now legal at almost everywhere in the country. Got it. Well, that's great. And so are there a lot of competitors? Are there a lot of farmers out there trying to do the black currant thing? It's still moving pretty slowly. And so, you know, that's kind of another part of the story. Um, When I first started this thing, of course, there were no current seedlings for me to buy to get started. So I had to go up to Canada and get the seedlings. And the seedlings that were available, the cultivars, the varieties of currants, uh, were fine, but not great. And um, so I brought them down and I planted 10,000 seedlings and um, grew them and started to harvest them after a couple of years. But at the same time, I was looking for, you know, again, I have a horticultural background, so I was looking for uh, better plants, better seedlings and so forth. There was no breeding program in the U.S., of course, because it was illegal. And so I found the largest and most sophisticated breeder of black currants was in Poland. Mm-hmm. a little town called Chernobyce north of Warsaw. I started going back there uh, every year for the last five or six years. And uh, I've now been awarded the exclusive rights for all the Polish patented varieties of black currants for the North America, for Canada, and the U.S. And they're far superior to anything we've had from the standpoint of disease resistance, insect resistance, better croppers. In other words, there's more berries per bush, higher ascorbic acid, um, and uh, just last year, I ripped out 10,000 plants, and I'm in the process of replacing them all with these new Polish cultivars. That's fascinating. So you're mentioning, like, Europe being a big mainstay for all of these uh, seeds and uh, the kind of the source for you for, for this and, and your understanding of it. So how big of a part of the culture are black currant seeds? Um, and then the follow-up question, I guess, would be, um, what do you see black currant seeds being in this country, just like a little add on a superfood, kind of one of the things that you get just on a whim because you're on vacation and you want to try to eat healthier than eat sugar all the time. Get- so, um, I think black currants have a huge potential in the U S mm-hmm. um, uh, several years ago, probably a decade or more ago, there was a product that uh, launched onto the, um, juice scene, uh, which most people have now heard of called palm wonderful made from pomegranates. Yeah. And, um, before that, you know, pomegranate juice didn't really exist. And the people that made that company, uh, they're actually big supporters of BART here in the Hudson Valley, which is interesting. But they, um, they're they very, very large farmers, largest farming operation in the world, and very, very deep pockets. And they put about $20 million behind the marketing of palm juice. Mm-hmm. Um, and I launched about the same time as they did. And to be honest, I was about $20 million short of the $20 million I needed to compete with them. <laughs> so our marketing efforts have been, um, you know, less than fantastic. You know, the way to market something and get it into mainstream really quickly is to just throw millions and millions of dollars after it. Right. And I wasn't able to do that. So long-winded answer to your question, it's, it's growing. I think it has great potential. Uh, I think it's going to be fantastic. 
but it's it's kind of growing slowly just because I don't have the you know the marketing muscle to sort of yeah. you know throw it out there on every television station and nationwide and you know whatever. Right, we got to make currents great again is what the campaign should be. <laughs> I think that seems a ring. I'm not going to touch that. <laughs> You're not going to go near that. Okay, but yeah. So no, in Europe, gonna... is Europe uh, black currant seeds is a big part of their culture, or is it just uh, kind so, of an add on fruit? Yeah, black black currants. Uh, yeah, they're it's a really big part of their culture, and, and uh, in the UK uh, during World War II, um, the shipping lanes were closed, and um, the Brits are very, very um, aware and very uh, cognizant of the value of ascorbic acid vitamin C. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the word limey, as you probably know, I comes do. from when the sailing ships used to take off with salted meat and hardtack, and everybody would come down with scurvy until they hit the um, the islands, uh, and then they'd get off and have limes and lemons and oranges and whatever, and all of a sudden the scurvy uh, disappeared, and they realized that was the vitamin C. That was the, the cure for this. Well, when the shipping lanes got closed and the Brits didn't have a lot of access to citrus, the uh, British government uh, decided since black currants were ubiquitous in Britain and a lot of people grew black currants, and as I said earlier, black currants have four times the vitamin C of oranges, the British government uh, during World War II began to give vouchers uh, to every child under 12 for black currant juice. Uh, now, there was a pharmaceutical company in current, in uh, Britain at the time called Beecham's. And Beecham's, although they got into pharmaceuticals and over-the-counter nutraceuticals, I don't think the word nutraceutical existed back then, but yeah. um, they actually went into the juice business because it was a form of delivery for vitamin C. And they made black currant juice. They called the company Ribena. The botanical name of currants is Ribes. And so they called the company Ribena after that. And uh, then many years later, it became a big hit. And of course, everybody had these vouchers, so it was an instant success. And many years later, uh, uh, Beecham's sold out their company to another small uh, pharmaceutical company called GlaxoSmithKline. Mm-hmm. Very small and, company. <laughs> very small. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and GlaxoSmithKline continued to develop and, um, and grow this company, even though, of course, once again, it's mainly pharmaceuticals. It was kind of their one-off. They made this juice, and they set up a breeding organization up in Dundee, Scotland, to breed better varieties of currants and so forth. And last year, or maybe the year before, GlaxoSmithKline sold their juice business to a Japanese company called Suntory. And while the numbers weren't published about what the um, company was doing financially at the time, the speculation is that black currants have become a half a billion dollar business in the form of juice wow. in the UK. Um, so, again, to answer your question, is is it big in Europe? Yeah, it's huge. In, yeah. in Poland, in fact, most of Eastern Europe, um, black currant juice is, is like apple juice or orange juice. Is, it. It's is it as big as David Hasselhoff or no? Uh, I would say bigger. Bigger? Wow, bigger than David <laughs> especially, especially these days. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I focus on quality around supplements, and I would imagine that there is a risk for, you know, uh, kind of like bootleg crops. So uh, messed up seeds, uh, some adulterated product, um, or misrepresented uh, things. So, uh, and that happens in a lot of different verticals, of course. So like when it comes to the black currant industry, uh, is there a risk of people getting something labeled as black currant, but actually it's not? Well, as a matter of fact, um, yes. 
is the short answer. Okay. Uh, in the 1920s, um, about 10 or 15 years after the band was enacted and, and currents, black and red and everybody else, had kind of fallen off the radar screen, um, some importers began to bring in a dried grape, a raisin, from uh, the Ionian region of Corinth and Zacanthos in Greece. And when the first uh, boxes came, of course, back in the you know early 1920s, labeling restrictions aren't what they are today, and all of the boxes were written in Greek writing, and the writing um, sort of delineated where the, the source of origin of these raisins. So it was Zacanthos and Corinth, and it was mistranslated to Zante Currents. And to this day, you can still go into a supermarket and pick up sun-kissed Zante Currents. And if you, we have cookbooks for 80 or 90 years telling us to put currants in our scones and our soda bread and our rice pilaf dishes. And many times you'll go into restaurants and you'll get some dish and it'll quote currants. And all of these situations, these are not currants. These are grapes. These are dried grapes. Or raisins, Garbage raisins. Is, yeah. Uh, I mean, they're certainly fine. You know, they're not unhealthy or they're not bad, but they're nowhere near, you know, the, the cache of goodies that currants have. Right. And interestingly enough, since I've been doing this over the last decade or so, and I have gotten the word out, and I have introduced currents to the United States, and people now uh, beyond expatriates know what currents are, a lot of the people that sell these quote-unquote Zante currents have started to jump on my bandwagon as far as the health claims, and they've renamed their products to things like black Zante currents, Zante black currants, mm. and sometimes even black currants without the Zante um, prefix and uh, and most consumers see this little raisin. They think, "Oh, I, I read about currants. They're really healthy. I'll buy these." Right. And in fact, they're not currants. Right. It's an important thing. We talk about this all the time. And actually, this segue is really good into another talent that you have. We'll leave currants for a moment, but uh, you're a mushroom forager. So, so mushrooms is a, a great example of this. Things that are labeled as mushroom products in the supplement industry aren't, in fact, mushrooms. They're something else. There's some uh, manifestation. Either it's uh, the roots of the mushroom or it, it's uh, just mostly rice and grain. So that is very similar. So let's talk about your mushroom foraging. Um, do you have any advice for us beginners? I normally tell people, like, don't eat anything. Uh, you know, pick all you like. It's actually similar advice that I give my children about their noses. But, like, you know, <laughs> how, how do you survive the uh, mushroom foraging passion uh, without dying from horrible mushroom <laughs> killer so, mushrooms? Yeah. You know, it's, it's interesting. Mushroom foraging is such a big deal. And as I mentioned, I lived in Europe for a while, and it's a huge deal. It's a big family event. People go out on the weekends during chanterelle season, during morel season, even during truffle season, and the whole family goes out and they pick these things and love them. And it, there's just not the phobia that exists here. Now, that's not to say that there's not a reason for phobia. Right. Um, you know, you can eat uh, the wrong mushroom and, and people can get uh, really sick and in right. rare instances actually die. Uh, and in less rare instances have um, organ failure and so forth. So terrible things can happen. Mm -hmm. Um and as one goes out in the woods and eats wild foods uh, of any kind, mushrooms certainly at the top of the list, but there's a lot of things you need to be very careful about. I not only do mushrooms, but I do uh, herbal medicinal herbs and so forth. And so, for example, I was just having this discussion last week. I'm going to get off mushrooms for a second. I'll get back on. But um, someone was having terrible nausea with um, some chemotherapy, and I made some hesop tea out of, out of um, agastache leaves. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, and it's wonderful for the nausea. Totally stop the nausea and so forth. But you need to know about it because if you give the same tea to someone who's pregnant, it could actually cause miscarriage. So right. this is true in the in the outside world. You know, you, you yeah. got to be. You really have to be knowledgeable. And in the case of mushrooms, you really have to know what you're doing. In the case of edible mushrooms, and there's thousands of species of mushrooms. I mean, here on my farm, I've identified 13 edible mushrooms. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, 13 edible mushrooms. There's thousands of varieties of mushrooms that are certainly not edible, and some of them are, they just taste bad, and others can be, you know, highly toxic. Right, and they look um, just like the ones that are edible. Well, some of them do, you know what I mean? And again, you need to be careful. So, for example, chanterelle is one of the front ones that uh, people around here love to find. They're delicious. They're called the queen of mushrooms, and and, uh, and there's one species out there called a jack-o'-lantern. Um, it's called a jack-o'-lantern because it has a phosphorescence that glows in the dark with black light, and it looks very similar to chanterelles. And every year, you know, there's one or two uh, instances of people getting sick, not dying, but getting sick from eating the, these chanterelles. Um, morels are one of the things that most people know in the springtime, and there's a false morel. Now, if you put the two of them side by side, while there are remote similarities, they're really not the same, as with the chanterelle. So um, you need to educate yourself. You need to find out where they grow. Um, there's a wonderful um, mushroom that grows really, really large. Uh, it's called uh, chicken of the woods, not to be confused with pen of the woods. And the chicken of the woods can be a 20 or 30 pound mushroom. It's this bright yellow orange shelf mushroom, and it grows on uh, uh, recently died, dead oak trees that have come down in a storm or something like that. And they're just fabulous. And, you know, to go out and harvest a 30-pound mushroom is always exciting. Um, and and they're just wonderful. They don't. There's nothing else that looks like them. You can't make a mistake with these things. They're always wonderful, uh, except when they grow on hemlock trees. If they grow on hemlock trees, they can be poisonous. <laughs> so, you know, you need to educate yourself. Yeah. Most people can tell the difference between a hemlock tree and an oak tree uh, with very little education, but you have to know this stuff. And so, uh, again, to your original point, don't eat anything unless, you know, you really know what you're doing, but don't shy away from it. I mean, the best thing to do is not to go out there and say, oh, my God, there's a thousand mushrooms. What am I going to do? Go out there and learn four or five of them and really enjoy them and 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 read about them and learn where they grow and learn which ones grow in conifer forests and which ones grow in hardwood forests and and uh and once you've done that once you've familiarized yourself with them um it, it just opens up another whole world of first of all getting out in the woods foraging for mushrooms which is great fun and secondly um for the you know the gastronomic end of it for being able to actually cook with these things which is really quite wonderful Wonderful. So you are uh, quite the expert and jack-of-all-trades, it seems. You've had quite an interesting life. You're, you're a rebel, which a lot of us Woodstockers can relate to, of course. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you've been a restaurateur. You touched on us. You've been a restaurateur. You've been a farmer. You're a lobbyist. You know, you're like one of those big wigs in Washington lobbying for change. I don't know about big wigs. <laughs> I, I, I eschew that label. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but anyway, you were a lobbyist. You made some legislative change. And now you're a celebrity. I think that this is the thing here. Greg, like you should be more well-known. The The idea of black currants should be more well-known. People should be eating these as part of their diet. They are very helpful foods. And we should know your name because this is very recent. This is all new to all of us. And you're the guy. You're the one that got this done. So I want to thank you for your tenacity. Thank you for your education. 
thanks for coming on the podcast and sharing your story. And and we're hopefully going to be carrying some of your products so that way some people can get their hands on black currants. Terrific. Well, it's been a great pleasure, Neil. Thanks. You're very welcome. Thank you, Greg, for coming on and sharing your story. I encourage you all to first visit CurrentC.com. Uh, that's a very cute name, of course. Uh, C-U-R-R-A-N-T-C.com to read about Greg, his farm, and currants. I'm going to nudge you for a commercial purchase here. Buy his products. Currants are a real superfood, as Greg pointed out, and he's America's number one farm, and that's not just BS. Uh, also, Greg's done a TED Talk, so check that out. That's uh, on the page. Any current-related questions, email ghquinn at currency.com. That's G-H-Q-U-I-N-N at C-U-R-R-A-N-T-C.com. And I'm sure he'd love to chat. So that's it for us. Until next time, keep listening, keep learning, and be well. <laughs>